0: Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block, and I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage.
1: How are you? Hi, Stephen. Stephen.
2: Okay, are we? Are Stephen and I both wearing the same? Yes, you, you are. are. You're wearing You're the same both color. Both in green. Yes, <laughs> it's like what are the odds? You two are <laughs> psychically tied together, tied together at the wardrobe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're so psychic, psychic, friends, as Dionne Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: So today we have two guests on the show. They are an acclaimed theatrical writing team. They've won two Tony Awards, two Drama Desk Awards, two Olivier Awards, and they've been nominated for four Grammy Awards, two Academy Awards. They received the Oscar Hammerstein Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2015, were inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. This partnership has lasted almost 40 years. I had the incredible good fortune to work with them in Ragtime, a show that I consider to be one of the greatest and most complex shows ever written. We are happy to have them here with us today, so
0: please welcome to our podcast, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens to stage, please. Stephen and Lynn to stage.
1: Thank you for having us. We're we're really excited, um, and we were thr- thrilled to get the invitation from you guys. So, you always were so humble and
3: open and kind to everyone. And I wanted to tell this story, um, Stephen, about you. And I don't, I doubt you'll remember it, but it was, <laughs> it was a really touching moment for me in the New York theater scene because sometimes, you know. The industry can be really harsh, and then in the sea of that harshness, it's like the two of you are this gentle presence in the industry. That's and kind. when I went in and I auditioned for ragtime, it was a you know some final callback, and you know how they are. There's you know twenty five people behind the table, and they're all staring at you, and of course you're nervous. And Stephen, you were standing up and leaning against the wall, and I was doing the the mother song, and it was. The part of the song where, you know, where the women are singing in the background, the, ah, right. And so it's hard to hear when you come in without that background and very quietly in the back of the room, you just slowly raised your hand and then you cued me. And I was like, (laughs) I love him because I could tell in that moment, you wanted me to succeed and you didn't even know who I was. And that moment just stayed with me for years. I thought it was just beautiful.
1: I probably saw a little bit of fear go <laughs> from, <laughs> you know, across your eyes. And you I probably thought, did. And here you go. The truth of the matter is, everybody wants everybody to do their best in an audition. Uh, there's a lot of this misconception of like us and them, and I think all the creators want everybody to be amazing. So I, I in the oh. past, I've jumped at the piano if like the if the audition piano pianist is mangling the song, and I know that the actor can do it but you can't tell. you know. So whatever it takes to make you guys look your best. That's can you the job. see
0: the looks on our face when we go a, a little awry? You can absolutely, no matter how we smile through it or continue to perform, you can see a shift in either our face
1: or our body, right? I think so. Don't you, Lynn? Yeah, I, totally. I, I not
2: only think so, but I, I know so. I mean, what I always feel when an actor walks into a room to audition I I am always a little, not on edge, but just rooting for them so hard Mm -hmm. and trying to keep my smile going and trying Mm to flow and welcoming them because I couldn't do what you guys do for a million trillion dollars. It is a miracle that anybody can get up in the middle of an empty room, stand on a spot and sing their hearts out and act and focus over our heads to some unknown presence that becomes so real. And it's, it's just a miraculous talent that actors have that I, I am in awe of since I am entirely lack it, you know. <laughs> so I just, anyway, we, we are always rooting for the actor, you know, and hoping yeah. to give them good energy. You can tell no. you have to be exhausted
0: then by the end of a, a casting session, because you are invested and you are empathetic and you're feeling all of these different energies and emotions, whether they're the high highs or the disappointments come in and out of that room.
2: You've got to be pooped. It's <laughs> true. I think in a weird way, it doesn't, you do expend energy for sure.
1: You do. You <laughs> certainly do. Uh, and, and also at recording sessions, you know, you think, you know, you're just sitting in a chair, listening to playback. But the truth of the matter is, is to listen really closely and really focused, that's, that's sort of exhausting. But the truth of the matter is, is if you find your actor, who's ultimately going to be your collaborator, at the end of the day at an audition session, then it energizes you because you're so looking forward to working with this person. You're looking forward to the future.
0: Now, Stephen, I saw your face when Mary Lee said 40 years together. (laughs) I know, know, right? What does that mean to you? I know the word marriage is used often when it's a lyricist and a composer, or when you've been collaborating and agree to walk together in this life for that long. How do you two inspire each other? How do you guys communicate that allows and affords for 40 years working together? (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a multi-part question. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I mean, for me, I, I just feel so grateful that Lynn and I met one another when we did. You know, I came to New York in the fall of '82, and by the spring of '83, we were writing together, which is something of a miracle. And it's that all—it's that big question of—is it like luck? Is it dumb luck? Is it being in the right time at the right place? Is it destiny? You know. I don't know. It, maybe it's a combination of all those things, but I feel grateful. And I also think that as you go together in a, in a partnership, you know, be it a marriage or a creative partnership, you're always developing as individuals as well as the team. So mm-hmm. I think that that's really good just to be sensitive to to that aspect, Lynn's maybe wanting to do a certain kind of show, and I'm scared of it, <laughs> which has happened in the past, and, and it could take me a while to to warm up to that. But just the idea of there's more where that came from because being Irish Catholic, I'm always expecting like the horrible drunk relation to walk into the room and yeah, take away the, a, and take and the to away. Gonna drop. <laughs> yes, that's right. And there's something and there's something about just the idea that you can find that there's more where that comes from and that you can continue and that, you know, you can grow and develop and have adventures and all of that. It's so surprising and wonderful. And I just feel grateful. I don't take a single day for granted. I don't Yeah,
2: Like he said, I have nothing to add. He's a, he's absolutely, I really don't. We're very lucky to, I think have found one another. And also when you find the right um, collaborator or husband or wife or, you know, partner, you kind of know it, you know, and you want to nurture that relationship. And if you're lucky, they do too. We have fights. I mean, we're sort of like a partnership. We have fights, we get mad at one another, we annoy the hell out of one another. And then, you know, other times, I mean, like after this pandemic, when I first got together with Steven, it was so thrilling because I had, thrilling. you know, we hadn't seen each other for over a year. Where normally we're in the room together pretty much at least three times a week, maybe four times a week, you know, all the time working. And suddenly it was kind of all long distancy and weird and it was stressful and all of the things that we all went through. You know, just to to feel like the normalcy of that relationship was coming back again was was thrilling. It really was. It's not just the work; it's just a friend, you know, that you can. Yeah. Like, and we've had adventures. We've had travels. We've gotten lost together. We've many, you know, we've been through bankruptcies and, and <laughs> all sorts of adventures in show business together, you know. So that's quite a quite a um, an experience. A background. You're each other's rocks. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and we. Yeah. And
1: it's interesting when we met uh, one another, and this is like way back in the day, almost forty years ago. When when we did that, we wrote an, In completely different ways. You know, I was like right out of the conservatory and I thought, I'm going to feel profound thoughts and I'm going to be a serious writer. And I only wore black and I had a beard. You know, and and I would just sequester myself like a monk, like a monk, you know, in in a room. And I would just write down the scores and it would be like, you know, I was doing, you know, copying Bibles or something Whereas Lynn was much more of an improv kind of gal and she would just be on her feet all the time in the room saying, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. And throwing ideas around. And it was very, I, at first threatening to me, she denies this, but I remember our first session together, she said, okay make something up and i realized <laughs> later that i had never made something up in front of another human being i would only wow. like like hide away and and make something up on my own in case frankly if it was terrible i would be the only one to kn- to know that and i would hide it and in those early days i would have i don't want to say writer's block i don't knock wood i don't believe i've ever had that but it would be hard for me to get beyond like measure 16 because I would know if I made this choice, the piece would go to the left and become one thing. Mm. And if I made a different choice, it would go to the right and become a completely other thing. And I would freeze rather than make a choice. And Lynn, taught me like just make a choice and if it's not the right choice you're going to find out soon enough and then you just you circle back and then you know you try the other way and we often write many many drafts of songs most of the time they just don't appear you know we'll do a draft and then you find something out about it and then bit by bit it reveals itself but a lot of the artistry of writing for the theater is the rewriting
0: So if you're both yin and yang in 1982, were you paired together in like a workshop of some kind, or you actually chose one another? How did that relationship even begin?
2: It's a wonderful story. We were in both in this BMI musical theater workshop. Up until that point, I'll just backtrack very quickly. My background was in jingles, you know, commercial music, children's television, those kinds of things. And I had made a schoolhouse rock. I did all this stuff before I thought about, even thought about musical theater. So I'd had a number of careers and I they were all based on me composing with some banging on the piano by ear, playing on the guitar, five chords. And I would write, sing melodies over my plunk, plunk, plunk music. And I'm, I'm a good melodist and I have a good ear. So I, I somehow managed to make a career as a total dilettante, you know, in all these different fields. I just didn't know what I was doing, but I was a composer. I, so I joined the BMI Musical Theater Workshop and they, get, they pair you up there and they, they say for the first assignment, you two will work together and the second assignment, you two will work together in trying to develop teams and trying to develop collaborations. But I never got paired with Stephen ever in that first year because he was writing his own lyrics. Self-contained, black-bearded young man who never looked anybody in the eye. He was so shy and he'd sit in a corner. And you know when it was his time to present a song, he'd go up and he'd play and he'd Sing a song and the lyrics were beautiful. And I would sit there going, He is so talented. But I never even said hello. He would just like zip out of the room it's at about. the end, like he'd just disappear. So I was working with other people, very talented. And at the very, very end of that first year, I was standing out in front of the building and Stephen Flaherty, uh, we chatting with some people. Stephen Flaherty went scurrying up the street, scurrying toward 8th <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> And he stopped maybe 150 or 200 feet away. And he turned around and he went, hey, Lynn, do you want to do the last assignment? And it was the last of the year. Do you want to write a song? And I was so stunned <laughs> that he could talk. Had- <laughs> I was like, well, uh, 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 OK, sure. And so we sort of made a date on the sidewalk. And you know, then he scurried away and we got together. And um, I had written a lyric for the last assignment which was pretty bad.
1: Um, (laughs) Say what the assignment was, because this was uh, sort of interesting.
2: Well, the assignment was um, uh, two people singing together in different places, right? So it's a traditional, um, you know, kind of a song where two people are singing the same song, but they can't see each other. In Susical, it's kind of like when Horton and JoJo are singing Alone in the Universe. That's Mm -hmm, a classic example of that kind of song. So I wrote a lyric about, and this is how long ago this was, two people um, placing personal ads in the village voice. Okay. <laughs> and this collaboration is this is before anything, before hinge. And yeah. Before, before anyone so, was swiping left. No. That's right. swiping left, <laughs> right. So, um, we, I handed him this lyric and he put it very calmly on the piano and he sat down and he put his fingers down and he went, he just sort of did this little musical thing looking at the lyrics. And I thought, there it is. This is it. I just knew it. I said, this is what I've been looking for because he was a lyricist and I was a semi-composer and we both had something to offer one another. So I offered I think, the spontaneity of of a work process where we can make mistakes and we can bang on the keys and my whole sort of background, sort of the, the overall, what we're aiming for. And Stephen is so detailed and so specific about every note and every Every chord from his background in in composition. So I think that that's, that's how we got together and why I think we, we fuel one another's creative process because I can hear things and say, I I don't know what that note is, but it's just not right. Or it should go up and I don't know, you know, and he can point at a lyric and say, not your best work right there. (laughs) But he knows. That personal ad really worked for the both of you.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) I know. And the the weird thing is Lynn found the original manuscript, which was ink on the lined music paper. She found it recently. And there was some quotes in it that were like oddly prescient. Somebody trying to find the other person and are you out there? And it was strange. The song itself is not great. Let's just put that out there. (laughs) But the process of writing the song was great.
3: It did its job. It brought you two together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we said, oh, let's do another one. Oh, let's do. And, you know, then you write a song, you write another song, and then eventually you write a show. And just the idea that you could continue. I think at that period of time, I was trying to put everything that I knew about music and life into every measure. And, that you know, that's just too Mm -hmm. much. And I realized, oh, this won't really fit well with this particular show. And Linden would say, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll do a project down the road about that, you know, where you can show that aspect of, of who you are musically And just the idea that there would be a future. This is like shows you like my dark Irish Catholic roots, you know, (laughs) just the idea that there could be a healthy continuity of things, you know, (laughs) that was like, wow, there can. Okay, sign me up for that.
3: What possessed you on that particular day? Such a shy person who was probably heading back to his room to write privately. Why did you do it? What took over you?
1: I think I think that I admired what Lynn was doing for a very long time, and she could do a complex emotion, and she could distill it into five words, where it mm. would take me probably 23. If truth be told, I thought music came to me very easily. It always has. I've been playing piano and creating things since I was like a kid, since I was seven, you know, but words, I I loved playing with them, but I, I was beginning to, I feel like I was in some sort of a rut. And, you know, if you're 21, 22 feeling you're in a rut, you know, you're just starting out. And I just, and I just thought maybe I should try to collaborate. You know, I, came from the Midwest and there was nobody else that was interested in this. So in a weird way, I would do book music and lyrics by default because there weren't other people that were interested in that. It's the old thing where you're waiting till like the absolute last moment to ask somebody to a dance or, or, you know, or a date or whatever. And I realized that I had like passed her and I was going up the street to the end of the block. And it's a thing where the hairs in the back of your neck go like this and that little voice whispers in your ear, like, turn around. And you either do or you don't. And if you don't, a potential amazing thing could pass you by. And I just and you
3: always that. wonder. I mean I have those you moments did. where I ignored yeah. that and I was like I wonder I wonder I wonder what would have been if I had not ignored that if I had yeah. the courage to listen to the little whisper, you know, and just yeah, do it. And
1: you know, and we're all afraid <laughs> to varying degrees of most things you know and, and I just and I just thought turn around turn around schmuck you know, raise your voice you know and I did and here we are and then something great interview. happened
3: and then the Irish Catholic in you was going oh god oh god I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah.
1: be
2: smited for something yeah. along yes, way. that's right yeah. that's right you can't enjoy
1: yourself too much you know don't
2: be too happy
1: that's right
2: and what I think is so interesting is that I, he was writing musicals from the time he was a Kid, a little kid. I mean, he loved theater from day one and always knew that was what he was going to do. And I didn't know it until I was about, in, I don't know, 34, 35 or something. Before that, I rarely went to the theater. I did, we did go. I went Once I met my husband, we started to go, but I never went in school. I think I saw one Broadway show, Fiddler on the Roof, when I was in college, but that was the first and only show I had ever seen. So in our collaboration, what I think is really interesting to me anyway, is that I learned how to write theater with Stephen Clarity. I didn't know what I was doing. He really knew the form and I'm a fast learner, but I didn't know a thing when we first met. I really, really didn't know what I was doing. Now I think I know what I'm doing, but I think I credit a lot of that to that or those early days with Stephen. And before that, my mother, because she taught me to love books and tell stories and love singing and dancing and Was she a writer? She's 95 and she's still a writer. Yeah. Amazing. amazing. She's an unbelievable woman. She really is. But she's written for her whole life and a big, huge reader. It's really sad because kids aren't growing up reading anymore.
3: Everything's so fast paced and they're always on computers and games that they're not, they don't find the comfort in books that I think we all found in our generation. Mm. And books taught me to dream oh, there's more world out there I didn't even know existed. And kids just don't, they're just not
2: into it. Kind of sad. And it's so sad. It's so yeah. sad. And, oh my gosh. Books are like my most treasured possession.
0: I, Stephen, I was going to ask if you were an only child, but you're Irish Catholic. So there's no way you're an only no. child. So you no. have siblings. Lynn, do you have
2: siblings as well? I do. I ha- I was the only child for seven years. I have two brothers. My next youngest brother is seven years younger than I am. And then my youngest brother is a year younger than him. So, you know, there's a little bit of distance between me and the guys. And I think I had the benefit of the dotage, you know, that a mother gives to an only child before, you know, all the chaos of young boys. So, um, you know, in that sense, I was very coddled and, you know, sung to and, and you know, given dance lessons and, you know, all of that sort of thing. When I was little, I, I really did have that kind of loving very focused um, rearing, I
1: think. It's interesting. My parents came later to having a family than like most of their relatives, you know, because for whatever reason they were having trouble, you know, conceiving. So the story goes that they pretty much resigned themselves to that and accepted that. And then instantly my mother got pregnant with my older brother and then, like a year and a month later, you know what they call Irish twins. Yeah. You know, they're the, I was there. There was me, and so I was number two. And then she paused a year, and then my younger brother came, and then my sister a year later. So within five years, there were four of us. We we had to move to a larger house, and uh, I I was lucky because this past week I had not seen my mother and I had not seen my family since pre-COVID. And I was able to go and hang out with them for a week in that house that we moved to in the 60s that, you know, I was four, you know, And, and the fact that we were able to be there as a family in that house after this crazy year, it was beautiful. I should point out that my younger brother actually is so musical. He plays nine instruments Oh, wow. And he just and, and he just does that for fun. That's his idea of of fun. He's a research chemist and he studied uh, the brass instruments. So he played uh, tuba and trumpet and trombone. And then he just taught himself like the banjo, the electric bass, the upright bass, all all these other instruments. And he actually knows more about music than I do. So whenever I was working on ragtime and I was I was feeling very vulnerable about the Lower East Side people because everything I was coming up with sounded like, you know, they had done it before in Fiddler and done it better. And I, Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I'm doing really well with the Harlem folk. I'm doing fine with the New Rochelle folk, with the other people in the show. But I'm having trouble with this this group of people. And he made a listening list of all his favorite klezmer and Eastern European music and the fact that he would even just know that. I, I, I love research. I love listening to different kinds of music, but he is like the deep dive guy. Wow, what a resource to have. Yeah.
0: When you look at your musical theater canon, are there characters that resonate with you more than others? Or have you ever written a part that sort of emulates either Lynn or... Stephen?
2: In a way, I think
0: every character
2: is, is us a little bit. I'm speaking for myself, but it's only recently that I've really begun to think, oh, I could really write something for this character that would be something that Lynn Aaron's wants to say. Mm-hmm. Because I'm usually so immersed in the, the actual character and in their life and in who they are and what their world is and, and what their story is that we're trying to tell. And usually by the end of it, there's there's something important, hopefully, in the show that I've been able to put forth into the world. But it's only recently that I'm I've been thinking about specific characters and how they might reflect me. And you know, I've never I've never really I, I'm always hiding, you know, hiding in the back darkness somewhere, you know, trying to put wonderful stories on stage that that actually move an audience and make them feel something. But specifically, I mean, I think there's probably a whole lot of me and Mother in Ragtime, because I've been through that arc of being a a very, you know, traditional girl as it's sort of brought up in a a good girl and nice person. You know, I've sort of identified with Wendy Wasserstein, who was always complaining how nice she was. And and I think as time has gone by, I've stepped over into the... uh, into the alto phase of my life, I'm not too- <laughs> so. You're more of a, a. Is it Rita from Lucky Stiff? Is that the?
3: I have a lot of Rita in me. I love her. She's one of my favorites of too. all your characters.
2: <laughs> and and I actually liked. Um, I I kind of love uh, the character of um, Countess Malevsky Malevich in Anastasia, and in fact. She's named after the woman we bought our house from, so the house I'm sitting in right now, by an old lady who was married to a white Russian whose name was Count Malevsky Malevich, and I took her name and put it in the show because I just love that character. That's fantastic.
0: Steven, any connections to a particular character?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I think Lynn said it really, really well that to write any character, and to give them voice, and especially to give them musical voice, which is sort of the sound of what their emotions are, what they're feeling. I think you have to relate to the character or you have to find things in your own life that are absolutely applicable. And even writing Once in on this Island, and obviously I'm not Timun, you know, <laughs> I'm just not. But at the same <laughs> time, uh, as that developing writing was happening, I, I was a caregiver for a friend, a dear, dear friend of mine who was going through a health crisis. And this was during, you know, the, obviously the AIDS epidemic and to be loving somebody and trying to keep the God of death at bay, you know, Mm. and trying to overcome that through faith or belief or whatever you want to call it. All of a sudden those scenes with Papa Gay jumping through a window, which I thought, Ooh, how do I write that? Because I was naive and had not experienced that. All of a sudden it's like life gave that to me on a platter big time. And Mm -hmm. it was a it was a very good time and a very difficult time and a way that I was able to learn a lot about myself and then take what I had learned and put it into a useful form, which was the score. Yeah,
3: a channel for all that pain and sadness
1: too. Channel. And I, you know, I felt grateful that I had that because a lot of people don't. They're just sitting with you know the unknown and the difficult. And so even though my background is not to moons, my um, emotional life, especially at that time, was. And uh, another character that I dearly love is Alfie Byrne in Man of No Importance. Man of No
0: Importance. I was going to say with the Irish background, there's got to be some characters in there.
1: Yeah. And there was a scene that's at the top of Act Two that was, uh, it's a small scene, but it was maybe one of my favorite scenes to write. And it was about Alfie Byrne in Confession. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and here and writing the show was Terrence McNally, another Irishman, and myself. And Lynn said, you know, I'm the lone Jew here. I don't understand what this confession <laughs> is. And, 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 I, and, I, and I said, well, there are so many emotions, at least for me, that, that oh. you feel during confession. And, you know, there's, there's shame, there's uh, hiding, there's fear. There's anger, you know. There's yep. humor, and it, it took us a couple of drafts to do it. And you know, luckily we were working with Joe Mantello, also a Catholic, so he knew <laughs> that there. He knew all these like conflicting emotions that happen in a confessional booth, and I just and I just wanted to really try to nail that as best I could because I'd been living with it so long. And so that was a favorite scene and a favorite character to write for.
2: I went to high school in, in Neptune, New Jersey, and it was a very big Catholic school. And all the boys I dated, you know, had names like Fabio Battaglia. and yes. the, you know, <laughs> Jimmy Trochia and stuff
3: Those like are that. my kind of people, Liz, so right my, there, <laughs> right? I was
2: very comfortable with all these Catholic boys on, on um, A Man of No Importance, but I really, I really did have to find out what happened in that confessional <laughs> because I didn't yeah. know. And, um, you know, what I wanted to say was, I think, you know, as a, as a writer of musical theater, you have to be so empathetic because Mm -hmm. you really have to become the characters. You have to go inside their psyches and figure out who they are and how you can express them. And we have all of these ancient cassette tapes that we have acted out characters on them, you know, and walked around the living room and, you know, and I'll be reading Sarah and Hill, I'll, Cole House and this one and doing all the voices. It's so embarrassing when I think about it. And they will be released when we die. Not <laughs> never, Come on, can we have never, one small snippet yeah, well. to play on the show? Come on, Lynn, just a little piece. <laughs>
0: I, I keep going back to Joe Mantello and I can just imagine Joe Mantello sitting there in the confessional saying, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been uh, forty-two years since my last confession. <laughs> <laughs> well, that man's not been in a confessional for a long, long time. time. <laughs> that was
3: that was kind of my dad was like the north end guy, you know, and he used to say, "I don't ah. go to confession because I ain't getting out of there if I go in, and they let me out."
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs>
3: So let's go back to Terrence McNally a little. You just were talking uh, about him. Talk about your relationship with him.
2: I miss him every day. I'm, I'm sure do you too. do. I miss him every day. Yeah. And I can't believe I'm even saying that because I, you know, I don't miss my father every day, but I miss Terrence every day. Uh, because he was just such a, an amazing and special presence, but he and I fought like cats and dogs. It did. And, <laughs> it really did. and people were always interceding because they thought the project would collapse because we were having like, you know, like, no, Terrence, I'm not that, you know, and I would have to always be saying, you know, can you please not use this word in the introduction to the song because I'm using it in the song lyric and I wrote the lyric first. And, you know, it was sort of like, you have to, we'd have a big fights because we're both, we were both, and I still am, you know, such perfectionists. But I think under that, it, ugh, what a writer he was. I mean, he could just right. write a monologue for a character And I would look at it and go, well, (laughs) there's the song. And I would steal all of his work to put in song lyrics because it was so lyrical to begin with and so poetic. And he was unbelievably generous about that and loved it. He loved hearing what we would do with his stuff. It was a very exciting collaboration. We did three shows with him. And then I think, I don't know if it was exactly the last thing that he ever wrote, but very much toward the end, we did a a concert version of Ragtime. And he rewrote... Mm -hmm certain things and we, we rejigured certain things so that it could literally be done at microphones, you know, with with beautiful segues of narrative in between the scenes, you know, to to hold it together. And it was, it was certainly our last collaboration. And uh, he made, I think he might have been, probably was working on a play because he always was. The very sad thing, I guess, that I still think about was we were down in Florida, in Sarasota, doing a show at the Oslo Rep when the pandemic hit and Terrence was scheduled to come down there. He and his husband have a, a condo. So we were going to get together and he was going to come to opening. And he, we, I very much wanted him to see a preview and give notes and, you know, all of that stuff. And when we were basically shut down, we all left Florida and I emailed him. I still have the email. And I said, Terrence, don't come down, don't travel. But their plans were in place and they came down and he died the following week. So he, we miss him a lot much every day i do think about it. when i'm writing because i do i'm trying to write with music it's hard for me because ah. you I'm setting music and i you know i can't hear any other music except steven's music but right now i'm i'm not even gonna tell Stephen Flaherty what i'm working on at the moment I, but I i'm
1: thinking to- wait a second this is news it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like i've not heard this
2: <laughs> i'm not telling you just yet but i'm i'm working on a little something to show you but i'm trying Good. to music in my ears just because Terrence did that. She's got to keep you
0: excited. There have to be secrets (laughs) after 40 years. This is how you keep the marriage alive.
1: I remember (laughs) that Terrence himself said that he relied, he felt too much on music in his plays. When you think of Masterclass and, you know, Lisbon Mm -hmm. Traviata, and, you know, they had big sections of music. And I remember him saying for Perfect Ganesh, which is his play of two middle-aged women on a trip, on a pilgrimage to India, he said in scene one, he had them both forget to bring their Walkman so they would have no music. And he said that was his oh. his way of preventing himself from late in a later scene using music, which at the, that point he felt like it was being a crutch. And mm. I think that's so interesting whenever you begin writing to give yourself limitations, because yeah. I firmly believe, as Stravinsky said, creativity only comes by limitation. If you have everything available at every given moment, then it's hard to focus in and focus down. So. Too many choices. That's right. But but Terrence was so supportive of, of, us, not only as writers, but as people. And he would always ask, how are you doing? As opposed to, how is the show that you're working on doing, you know, and I, I I, meant the world, you know, because it's, 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 you know, the shows are great and the process is fantastic. And the people that we meet, it's, it's just incredible, but it's not the full picture of what your life is, you know? And I think that he was always aware of that in his own life and in seeing other people. And he was always about the context of, of things. I used to have pe- people fairly recently asking me, um, so what are you working on? You barely opened a show, you know, or you're in the process of birthing a show. And it's like, so what are you working on? And I realized what I was working on was trying to find a larger frame you know, it wasn't about this project or that. It was about like taking a couple steps back and looking at the, the whole picture of, you know, what we're doing and, you know, why we're writing and what it means to us. And it's never about any one project, you know, because things rise and fall and, you know, and then they go away and then you're into the next thing. And mm. but it's it's about trying to find that larger frame, the, the context that, you know, that's who that's what your life is.
0: <laughs> I hear that in, in your music. Both of you. I hear the grand and the small, and I think that larger scope is apparent in all of your scores.
2: It is the specifics of life, the specifics. Of what somebody's wearing and what somebody, you know, does mother have a whalebone corset on that constricts her? Or, you know, does Alfie Byrne in in, uh streets of Dublin? There's a uh, you know, there are references to specific people who lived in Dublin in 1964 and worked there. And I use their names. And I I I feel like um it is the specifics of life that inevitably are universal Mm -hmm. because all have different specifics. And, but if you start with, you know, you wear a totally different kind of clothing a different religion, different place, different everything. But if you can be specific about those things, we're all human underneath those, those various specifics. And I'm very interested in that in the, you know, like the little details that bring reality to, to characters, Mm. but also that um, somehow let the characters, be more, be more united as human beings.
1: The thing that everybody assumes is being a composer that you're in the driver's seat all the time, that you know where you're going, you know, it's going to be two left turns and a right, and then you circle Mm. around. And the truth of the matter is, is you don't, you know, if you can really be in the moment with the character and you're riding that wave, then all of a sudden there will be a a surprise left turn that you couldn't yourself see coming. You're like, wow, that's, and, and I really think if I surprise Myself, whenever I'm trying to pull the music out, then chances are that you surprise the listener, you surprise That you're the on the audience. right track. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember working on uh, Goodbye, My Love and What of the People, which is this oh, yeah. totally different idea. And, it, yeah. and, it, and all of this other kind of music poured out of the middle of this song. And I, I, I couldn't see it coming. But what's
3: interesting is in the, even in that example, you can feel her constriction in that whalebone corset Mm -hmm. just, just through what you guys were writing in that moment. It's really, it's, it's, it is beautiful. It's genius. It's brilliant.
0: Do you find more of those surprises when you're on your feet acting the stuff out or does it um, Mm -hmm. reveal itself to you at the piano?
1: It's it's, uh, that's, that's such a great, that's a great question. I mean, yeah. I, I find that it depends on what the kind of score is. I know that for once in this island, whenever I would be at the piano, somehow it would come out as more European or more composed. And, and it was really about movement and rhythm and the body. And I just realized somewhat early on that I should not be writing that score at the piano. You know, mm. so I would literally just get out, and I'd be walking down the streets, and I'd be trying to feel the the rhythm and trying to feel the beat, and you know, in my body and my and in, in you know, in walking, I found a lot of the melodies and the grooves away from that piano. And the piano sometimes can uh, sometimes can be your nemesis because if you're sitting in front of a piano, that means like I am here to write, and the piano can just go like this and fold its arms and you know, give you attitude. Dare, yeah. Yeah. I dare you. Yeah. And, and you have to find these ways to sort of fool that. Like you're, you've got to come into the, the side door, you know, some scores are meant to be written at the piano and I feel them at the piano, but sometimes it's great to get away from that piano and great to get away from what you know and what you feel, because, you know, there are certain notes that fit well under my fingers. Chances are there notes that I've used before. The so. habits. Yeah. The habits, here, what you're I'm used to. Gonna you add,
2: I was just going to add that, You know, there are many times when we're writing a song and, you know, sometimes the music comes first and sometimes the lyrics come first. And, you know, I personally always like to get a little bit of music first because it just helps me. But we'll be sitting there and almost improvising back and forth and suddenly we both start to cry. Because something has surprised us, It's, you know, and it's like you don't expect it. You're going and this, and this and this and you know, and you go, what the heck? And it's it's wonderful when that happens. You know, it's quite wonderful, and that's when you know that if it touches you and you're surprised by it, everybody will be.
3: Now it's
0: time the five questions. If you were to speak to your twenty year old self, what would you say to her?
2: Never read reviews. Keep going. Do what you do with joy. Put it out there and move on to the next thing that gives you joy. And do not let anybody stop you.
3: That's perfect. That's perfect.
2: Stephen, if you could have
3: any ability that you do not possess, what would it be?
1: The ability to fly. Mm -hmm. Oh, good one. I, I would like to be a superhero and just sort of hover over Manhattan with my cape. And I often (laughs) do in my dreams. Then I wake up. Black cape, black (laughs) beard, that kind of thing. (laughs) That's right, man. (laughs) Maybe a maybe a with show logos. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs)
0: Lynn, do you have any good luck charm or uh, like a ritual or superstition that you use or
2: have used in the past? Mm. Uh, You know, let's see. Well, I have certain little talismans that I think, you know, sort of are inspiring and, and bring me luck. And one of my favorite ones, believe it or not, is a picture of Michelle Pauk's son when he was still in the crib wearing a doctor's uh, a cat in the hat hat. Oh. <laughs> and I, it's on my bulletin board and has been since the experience that was susical and it lets me know that out of difficulty comes beauty because she was pregnant when we were rehearsing that show and gave birth to Jack. And, you know, we've got have this, I just love this picture and it just means a lot to me. So I think it's something that I, I think about. I can see it totally in my head anytime it's right on my bulletin board and on my desk. And I think it just, you know, gives me a little jolt of hopefulness every now and then when I need
1: it. Okay,
2: Stephen, tell us something about
3: yourself that most people don't know.
1: Um, Okay. Uh, I also paint. I'm also a visual artist. And uh, I was lucky that I got both of those things from my father. He has an amazing set of ears. And uh, he he has an amazing eye. He painted his whole life. He played jazz trumpet. Uh, after our family dinners, he'd go up to the attic and play, nobody Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, which sort of sent a real mixed message <laughs> to the family. <laughs> but um, he, he was he was very gentle. He was very kind. And he would always say, listen to what that clarinet's doing right there in that part, mm. that, that phrase, or, or, ooh, look at that. That's not blue. That's blue with a green under it. And just all of these teeny details, that's how he was wired. And I think he passed that on to me. I don't think I'd be seeing the world in the same way if if I did, if I had somebody else as a dad. So oh. I was lucky. I
0: love that. I'm going to level the playing field and ask both of them this oh. question. Okay. This is, this is the stumper. Oh. If you were a nail polish color, what would it be and what's the cheeky little name of that nail polish? Steven? <laughs>
1: I I think if if I were a nail polish color, it would be this color, this shade of green, Mm -hmm. which I see is also a favorite of favorite color of (laughs) Lynn's, and and the color uh, would be called. Let me think. uh, Streets of Dublin, I think it would. Oh,
3: nice! I was thinking Luck of the Irish, (laughs)
1: Luck of the Irish, Irish, yeah. yeah. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, since I don't really wear nail polish. So it's hard, but uh, you know what I would say? Transparent. <laughs> you <know>? go. <laughs> I think transparent <laughs> because it's sparkly and it's, you know, you don't feel too dressed up, you know, it just sort of hides a multitude of sins and and if I were going to call it something, um, I would call it Ms. Cellophane. You know, you can see right through it to the heart of things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I cannot thank you both of you enough
3: for coming on. You hold a very special place in my life and in my heart. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate you
2: taking the hour and talking to us. I really do. What a wonderful show. I mean, I know that you put this together. You're both so good at it. My God. Thank you. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Well, you're, you're, you're both extraordinary artists, but extraordinary people too. And I think, I think you see the big picture of things, which I think is the goal for all of us. And, uh, it's been just a, a pleasure spending this chunk of the morning with you both. So thanks for asking.
0: Thank you. Thank you Have both. Love
3: you both. Excellent.
1: Love you both. are right. okay. wonderful. Thank
0: Bye. you. Bye. Bye. This is what struck a chord with us. Oh, oh. my God. Look at us. We both just went...
3: <sighs> I seriously, I think I'm going to cry right now. I mean it when I say like they're very important in my life. They... There are a couple of, you know, a couple of musicals that just gave me courage. And they're they're definitely one of those writing teams that just touched a part of me and gave me the courage to show who I am, which I think is hard for me sometimes. At least it was when I was younger. It was much harder. I'm getting better at it.
0: I also think when... So you had admired them so much before you reached the professional scene, and when you have that deep respect and admiration for creatives, and then they sit in a room with you and say, "You recognize my genius," and now I'm saying, "I recognize your genius." So that's a huge thing. That's a that's a recognition that I think many artists are wanting, not just to be chosen. But to be recognized and to be recognized by people they so deeply respect. And that happened for you with ragtime. And that's no small feat. That's a lifetime memory and validation that will stay with you for, forever.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, and they're wonderful people. And it is true that somehow through all the things that they've done, they have every right to be arrogant and they are absolutely the opposite of arrogance. They're so generous and so kind and so willing to give
0: credit. They're everything that art should be, those two to me. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And, you know, it makes sense when Lynn was speaking about the jingles Because you do have to be very to the point. You either have 15 or 30 seconds to sell this product with language that's going to stick in a consumer's head. So it's kind of all about being concise. And then she mentioned that she had brother's. And that house, I can, right? You only have a quick breath to drop in and have your your voice be heard and you better get to the point or else no one's listening to you.
3: Well, it's really I, true. When I was a kid, because I had two brothers, right? Two older brothers. I had a stutter. Because I could never gather my thoughts quickly enough to get my sentence out between my two boisterous brothers running around. And, and so I, I, I w- w- would. And so my mother would make everybody in the house, as soon as I opened my mouth, she'd be like, everybody stop talking. And the whole house would stop talking so that I could form my sentence. And eventually I did get past it. But it was only because my mom was like, you guys have to stop talking as soon as she's trying to express herself or she's never going to get her words together.
0: What a thing, and what a great mama to recognize that and be like, Hold, everybody, hold. Yeah, Um, it was very, and grateful for them for actually doing it. You know, we spoke about Terrence McNally, and I loved what they said about him and um, who he was as a man and an artist, which, again, with them, those two go hand in hand. It's almost more important to be the good human and then produce great art. But I also wanted to get in there, which I didn't, uh, to speak to Graciela Danielle because oh, you right. worked her on Ragtime. Yes. She came into um, our creative team when we were doing Pirate Queen, when we were moving it from Chicago to Broadway. And again, what a little package of a person, mm-hmm. but the way she works with artists, the space that she's able to, um, not command. She Heck,
3: commands, she right. walks into a space, That's commands right. that space. And she is, That's she's right. teeny tiny, but she's brilliant. brilliant. Uh, but, and she's not mean or forceful or anything. She's just, she walks in and you feel her in that space and you just shut up and listen. Cause she's amazing.
0: And yeah. the Tony, uh, the Tonys are recognizing her. I want to say this year, but it's so backward. We're going back to 2020, but the committee is recognizing her for the lifetime achievement in the theater and i am so glad they're taking that into account because she's um she's masterful and she's had a huge impact on theater
3: i wonder if we can get her to come on and chat with us
0: wouldn't that be a great chat let's call Uh, her i will i I would love it
3: she's wonderful all right i love you
0: So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes
3: out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Alison Arns, our PR and social media
0: expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.